Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's the week of April 6th. Uh, $2 trillion has already been committed to um, fixing the economic crisis caused by the pandemic. And now Congress is talking uh, about a second stimulus. Amity Schles is a best-selling author. Many of you will know her from her last two or her last three books, Forgotten Man, Great Society, and uh, Coolidge. She has historically been one of the few people critical of what we might think of as great society programs. Amity, how nervous are you about these trillions of dollars now being thrown around by Congress to fix the pandemic, the economic consequences of the pandemic? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm nervous. I would say I'm wistful because as you can see from the stock market response, even two trillion uh, didn't save us. Uh, it, it turns out that today as we speak that the news that, I don't know, the, the virus may have peaked does more for the market. So, so generally, Andrew, I tend to think the private sector is going to be uh, the salvation and that the market already recognizes that. In your last book, Great Society, in particular, very critical of some of the socioeconomic and cultural consequences of, um, of the Great Society of the 1960s, uh, a kind of post-New Deal society. Are you similarly fearful of the kind of public works that might be created out of this current crisis? I wouldn't say I'm fearful. I, I'm just saying, um, I wouldn't say I'm fearful. I would say I might be a little regretful that people would place that much hope in works programs. Works programs are important when citizens are sad, when they need something to do for morale and so on, but they aren't the panacea that people long for um, in regards to our economies. So rather than fearful, you're sad. Are you also sad about some of the ideas being thrown around, radical ideas in some people's mind, about guaranteed minimum income and other uh, legislative initiatives to support people without much economic means? I'm not sad either. Um, I think generally, it is a cause for chagrin that we expand the state in a crisis instead of use this opportunity, because Rahm Emanuel's right, crises are opportunities that oughtn't to be wasted. Use this opportunity to do something for markets. Uh, as I've you know, been writing lately, there are a bunch of things we could do for markets right away that would lead to real jobs faster as opposed to make work jobs. And what are some of those? A good example and uh, particularly important from the international perspective where it will be easy to see is the U.S. capital gains rate, the tax uh, when you buy and sell a stock. The current U.S. capital gains rate, uh, if you include this or that surcharge, is over 20 percent. 
What do you think would happen to the United States stock market if our cap gains rate went down to 5% in a permanent law? That is a law that would be hard to change for a year or more. Well, the entire world would pour into our stock market because stocks are already a buy, and then there's that on top. And then it would be much easier for companies not to close or need, and, and fewer companies would need bailouts. I, I challenge you, Andrew, to find an economist who won't say that business activity increases subsequent to a permanent rate change in the capital gains levy. There are some economists, I, I'm sure they're probably not in your camp, who are arguing that this no, is a tremendous... You, you like no they just say it they won't say it won't work what they'll say is only the rich will benefit which is different uh but but there are some economists who will argue that this is a great opportunity to raise taxes generally particularly on the wealthy um is uh, is that opportunity for uh, andrew opportunity for whom opportunity to collect revenue and to undermine the inequality uh, which, again, in their mind, is deeply problematic, both politically and economically. One of the data points that's been available only the past tw 20 years or so in the United States is the um, sensitivity to tax rates among the states. That is, when people migrate from one U.S. state to another U.S. state on account of a state levy in that instance, if we had been having this discussion 20 years ago, one might say, oh, that's just, um, well, it, that, that's just surmise, Amity, that someone would move from New York, uh, say, to Florida, which is a lower tax place, go, go to a t uh, place with no income tax. That's just surmise you have an anecdote. But now we have the data, and what we see already is a strong outmigration from the states in the United States that tax more heavily. That would be Connecticut, New York, and Illinois. That's one reason Florida is booming. So there's nothing to prevent Americans from becoming international tax refugees either. Uh, it's very easy to move around these days. So one of the things about the capital gains tax in the United States is it's incredibly sensitive to behavior. Um, and the other point I wanted to get at, it, you suggested that a lower, higher cap gains tax would bring more money. I would suggest um, the opposite, that a lower cap gains tax would bring more money, certainly more money than expected. That's been the statistics of income experience for the United States. When caps gains go down, uh, we swim in money. Uh, that's because foreigners move in, people transact. Uh, and there's just more activity uh, in the United States when cap gains taxes are lower. Amity, let's take a step back. Your book, Forgotten Man, is a highly respected uh, bestseller about the 1930s. Some people are suggesting that we are returning to the Great Depression. What, as a historian, what's your response to that? Are there similarities between what's happening today in April 2020 and what happened in the 1930s? Well, there are similar data points. So supposing the US has 20 or 30% unemployment this month, which it may well do. In, in US history, the point when we had 20 or 30%, mostly closer to 20 or lower, unemployment was the 1930s, the period of the Great Depression. So that's going to be an echo and a shock when the report comes out on some Friday, and people will say depression level. The 
takeaway from the Great Depression um, was quite different to what we learn in school books. Uh, the the takeaway of the, and, and the people of the period took that away and they spoke about it. We just don't get it in our textbooks anymore. The takeaway from the Great Depression is that recoveries are like people. They make choices. And every year in the 1930s, the recovery chose to stay away. It just wasn't um, a monocausal event, but a unifying theme for the recovery and its decision to hesitate was strong government intervention. So the question really is, what can we do to avoid replication of the Great Depression? What can we do to make this very obviously event-driven unemployment number really become a blip as people return to work? And the error um, that we see in the 30s is we, we just never made the private sector very attractive in the 1930s. One of the revisions of my book, Forgotten Men, is, is for example, Herbert Hoover, the first president, a Republican president during the Depression. He beat up on the private sector. He raised taxes. He signed a wicked tariff, the Smoot-Hawley tariff. And uh, he blamed business. He also exhorted business to sustain high wages um, and suggested that he would punish business that did not sustain high wages. And business um, duly complied, but at a cost in terms of employment, because when you feel you must keep wages high, you simply rehire more slowly. Uh, that's an important lesson too. The, the record unemployment of the Great Depression, which was great because that unemployment abided for 10 years, was in good measure due to labor market rigidities imposed by new legislation or government behavior. You mentioned uh, Herbert Hoover. Some people have compared President Trump with him. You, of course, wrote a best-selling book about Calvin Coolidge. What's your, um, what's your scorecard at the moment on, on the Trump administration's response to the crisis? Well, I'm not a journalist currently, so I don't rate presidents. Um, but you want to say, whom does Trump recall? I think most closely um, TR, Theodore Roosevelt, which, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was an impulsive, active person. Uh, he was a Republican, but the active variety. Uh, so so that's, that's who he recalls for me. He would jump in with both feet. He would... Um, speak ad hoc, uh, you know, so, so you see very much also a, a, a fine feel for the populist impulse, a way to mm. appeal to people. TR had that too. So you, you think that Trump is responding quite admirably in many ways as, as a, uh, I as didn't the next say that. I, honestly, Andrew, I can't comment on that. What would you like though the administration to do in, in, in terms of the next few months? What do you think the most sensible economic policies would be? Well, any administration together with Congress, and what I'm throwing out, um, I don't know, someone on the Hill would say impossible, but the point is, mm. it's thing is truly impossible if we don't even discuss it. So I'm gonna be the one to discuss it and let someone else figure out what is possible because what is possible changes daily in this particular circumstance. I mentioned a cut in the capital gains tax, a, a permanent lowering that is through statute. Um, another thing we could do in the United States, you know, um, we wanna know what are Americans doing when they're home? They're worrying about their health, they're taking their temperature, but they're also looking at their retirement account and there are tens of millions of Americans with retirement accounts 
of one kind or the other with stocks in them or stock indexes. I think a very valuable thing to do in this period would be for the government to create um, a savings vehicle called a flu IRA. The IRA means individual retirement account, the deeply popular uh, savings account for, for retirement we have in the United States that's tax protected. We created a flu IRA, which was particularly advantageous. Maybe if we put $200 of government money in it or a thousand, then at least the people who are stuck home quarantined could also get involved in the stock market. And many of them, I hear all the time from them say, what should I buy now? Should I buy Amazon? Should I buy Netflix? Should I buy S&P 500? Is it time for me to buy VU, that is um, the stock index of S&P? Um, Americans need to participate in the recovery as because they've suffered in the downturn. And what that kind of account, say a flu IRA would do, is give them an opportunity to join the plutocrats in writing the market mm. up. I see nothing terrifying in that. You know, there are even proposals out there, Andrew, there are even proposals out there, Andrew, that the government should wade into the market and buy stocks itself the way JP Morgan did a century and some ago. That's even more intrepid than what I would put forward. But my own view is the more stakeholders there are in the market economy, the stronger the market economy will be in future. So the more we can bolster the stock market, the better for everybody, really. Well, yes, of course. But it has to be a genuine bolstering, not a fake bolstering. A fake bolstering is a bailout for an individual company. That's just um, what we say, malinvestment. You know, it works for a time, maybe. Uh, but uh, a, a true bolstering would be allowing people an opportunity to partake in the recovery through equities along with through their job and so on. And, and since equities are relatively cheap now, it's a, it's a good time for citizens to get into the market and at least so they can at least see what the market does. So the $200 goes to zero. All right, it does, but maybe it comes back after that. More people should know how the economy grows and what the basis of the growth is. Right now, it's sort of like a school with, um, you know, with high schoolers. The, the government infantilizes our citizens and treats them as secondary school students, saying, we'll take care of you and you'll be safe. Well, that's crazy. No one is ever safe. It's all relative, Andrew, isn't it? We want to be relatively safe. And the best way to be relatively safe is for the economy to grow. And for everyone to grow up, Amity, perhaps one strategy should be since everyone's stuck at home at the minute, is, is is to read a good book. What would you suggest? Any as a historian, as a as a as an economic historian, a political historian, someone who's focused very much on the um, on on the history of 20, 20th century America. What, what do you think people should read to enlighten themselves about uh, the current situation? Well, Andrew, when the market is going up, it's good to read about entrepreneurs. I just reread David Canadine's fine biography of Andrew Mellon, the US Treasury Secretary for three presidents. Mellon was so powerful, it said that the presidents served under him when he was Treasury Secretary, and that's a good book. Anything about enterprise and uh, building, building product, building institutions in adversity, I recommend learning about Calvin Coolidge, who persevered, the president for whom I'm the biographer, whether you read his autobiography or my book. And then, uh, so these are up market books, let's say a down market book, the day the Dow goes down 1500 or whatever. Uh, then I read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. 
which is a, a philosophical book about the purpose-driven life. So it, I think it's important when you're down to put things in context. Uh, this is a terrible tragedy for the United States, but so far it's not um, the worst tragedy the world has ever seen. Um, we need to be able to put that in context and when things are going better, we need to figure out how to perpetuate that recovery. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.